Amen. Open your Bibles to Romans chapter 5. Romans chapter 5, the Lord ministers to us through the presence of others, ministers to us through singing music, and He ministers to us through His Word, which He'll do now. And we only have two verses in this passage uh, to... To finish it out, so we're closing. These are the closing words of this great passage that began all the way back in Romans 5.1. And the Apostle Paul has one final detail he wants to share with us before we turn to uh, this highly anticipated chapter of of Romans 6. Romans 6, if you have interacted with Mark Hager and biblical counseling at all, you'll end up memorizing part of Romans 6 because it's such a pivotal chapter um, that teaches us about this, this triumphant grace that, that, uh, that conquers the power of our sin, this resident power that is within us and how the grace of God conquers that. But before we get there, Paul wants us to understand something, and that little thing that he wants to teach us in these last two verses is actually going to set chapter 6 in its proper context. Um, In fact, if you don't understand what Paul is saying or what Paul says in verses 20 and 21, you're not going to be able to grasp, fully grasp, the message of of chapter 6. I mean, Paul's main concern up to this point has all been about assurance. He wants us to know that we are saved, and, and if you're a believer, to have no doubt about that whatsoever. And so in chapter 5, he, he's, he's been reinforcing that by, by adding some of these theological truths to your assurance. Uh, rebar, theological rebar, and, and he's been reasoning with us and pl- placing these, these truths and logic in our, in our minds. And, and so he's been laboring to show us how everything has changed since you have come by faith, to Christ. And so he begins back in verse 1, saying, Since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God. And then he begins to lay out the, the blessings that flow from this justified position to, to encourage us. And that was immediately followed by the passage that, that we just finished up in verses 12 through 19, about that there's, we can also have assurance because there's a change in our union with, with Adam, all all human beings remain under the, the consequences of our forefather, Adam. But a believer has a new union. We're no longer in union with Adam. We have a new representative. There's someone else that represents us before God now, and that's, that's the, the God-man, Jesus Christ. And in Him, your relationship to Adam has now changed, and it's been replaced with its association with, with the Son of God, with, with the last Adam. You can see that in verse 10. Look at verse 10 of Romans 5. He says, For if while we were enemies we were reconciled to God through the death of His Son, much more, having been reconciled, we shall be saved by or in His life. So we were once in Adam and condemned in Him. And having been justified, we are now in Christ. And we we reign in in life through, through Him, by being in Him. The Apostle Paul will use that phrase over and over and over in the epistles. You're, you're in Christ, in Christ, meaning you're no longer in Adam. And that shift has brought a completely new set of outcomes. 
Instead of judgment and death that we were under in Adam, we, we now have justification and life in, in Jesus Christ. And that's the heart of the passage that we just got done walking through, accompanied by the similarities and contrasts between these two men that tower over, over all of humanity. And, and last week, Paul wrapped up his argument in verses 18 and 19, after several, at least two, explanatory rabbit trails with which we followed. And and it all began with a, with a comparison between these two figures. In verse 12, verse 12, Paul says, Sin entered through Adam. Where did sin come from? It entered into the world through Adam. Death entered through sin. Where did death came, come from? It was, a, it was a, a judgment for sin. And then death spread to all because all sinned. And he didn't give us the other side of that equation uh, until verse 18. So Paul starts writing, and he goes to the end of verse 12, and he thought we, we needed some additional explanation. So he goes into this parenthetical statement in verses 13 and 14, and then gives us a second one in verses 15 and 17. Adam and Christ are surely similar and they, as they function as representatives, but they're not the same, so he explains how. And then finally, after all of that, in verses 18 and 19, what was introduced in verse 12, Paul finishes. Verse 18. So then, as through one transgression, there resulted condemnation to all men, even so. The shoe has now dropped. Here's the other side of the coin. Even so. Through the one act of righteousness, there resulted justification of life to all men. And that's his whole point. About the union of these two men with the people that they, they represent. But Paul brought something up back in verse 13 that he knows he can't leave alone. Because some people will be left confused or maybe even stumble over it. Look at what he brings up that he feels the need to explain further. Back in verse 13. He says, For the law, for until the law, sin was in the world. But sin was not imputed where there was or there is no law. So back in verse 13, Paul brought up the Mosaic law. And, and his point was all about how sin was in the world um, even before Moses came along and, and, and the law was given. He says the presence of sin even before Moses proves that mankind was already judged in, in Adam or else they wouldn't be dying. I mean, that's his whole point. I mean, yes, there came Moses, but, but before Moses, there's already sin and there's already condemnation because there's death. Because there was no, no law code to make a record because of their individual sins. People sinned for sure, but without the law, sin was not imputed to, to a, an individual person's account. I mean, sin was not recorded as a transgression up to that point, because there was no code to transgress. I mean, Adam had a specific command by God, and he transgressed that specific command. Sin was in the world even after Adam, and sin and death was there before Moses, but it wasn't until Moses came along where God gave us a specific law code where now transgressions are being recorded in the way of Brian, you know, thou shalt not lie. Brian is a liar, and he lied these four or five times because there's now a, a line to, to cross. In fact, Paul's whole point in this passage is that we are not condemned by the law, but in Adam. 
mean, that's his whole point of verse 13. We're already condemned in Adam before the law ever came along. You were already condemned before the Ten Commandments were ever written and ever came on the scene. But Paul still mentioned the law, which made Jewish believers say, yeah. <laughs> I mean, what, what about the law, Paul? I mean, the great apostle has been hammering this point on the law home since, since chapter 2. And his point has been that the law cannot save anyone. I mean, he said in, in chapter 2, verse 12, Romans 2, 12, For all who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law. That, that's us, people who weren't given the law. We did, we, we're not under the law of Moses. We're not Jewish people. And all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. But then in chapter 3, he boldly declares something else. He boldly declares in chapter 3, verse 20, because by the works of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight. For through the law comes the knowledge of sin. I mean, Paul says the law has no power or ability to save anyone whatsoever. By the works of the law, no flesh will be made right in God's sight. The law has no power or ability to do that at all. And now, if that wasn't enough for a Jewish person, Paul comes to chapter 5 and now he says that the law never even had the purpose to condemn us either. I mean, mankind was condemned already before Moses ever went up on the mountain. There was condemnation that reigned because... We had a representative, Adam, and he fell. He transgressed, and then his condemnation passed to everyone. His sin nature passed to everyone as well, so we sinned in the likeness of Adam. But the condemnation was fixed in Adam long before Moses ever came on the scene. And so the Mosaic law wasn't even given to condemn mankind. And so the Jew is likely sitting there saying, well, well, if that's true, then, then what's the purpose of the law? I mean, if it doesn't save me, and it wasn't given to condemn me, I was already condemned, then, then what's it for? I mean, we even hear that a little bit as New Testament Gentiles, and we scratch our head a little bit, because, I mean, I mean, the law looks pretty important to me whenever I open the Old Testament. I mean, there's a lot of text there in Deuteronomy and Leviticus. A lot of text that we avoid most of the time, but it's there. We, we know there's this big section in the, in the first part of our Bibles. Why then did God give the law if it has nothing to do with salvation? And verses 20 and 21 is the explanation to answer that, that, that question. I mean, Paul tells us here in verses 20 and 21, one of the several roles that God gave or that God has for the law. I say several because there's a few others besides this that, that he will reinforce later in, in Romans. But this is the main one. The main role of the law of Moses, the law in relation to Adam and Christ, in relation to sin and salvation, related to our condemnation and our salvation. And that's still the context here. You have to make sure you keep the context. There's still two men and there's... There are two acts and there are two results, and yet Paul feels like there's one final thing left unsaid that he needs to explain, and so he adds an addendum here. He doesn't go off on another rabbit trail. He's already closed out his thought at the end of verse 19. 
He thinks we'll get lost. I mean, how many parentheses can you give in a, in a section? So he closes out his argument, and then in verse 20, he says, furthermore, or, or moreover. He, he makes an additional statement. He gives bonus material, if you will. And one commentator said, this is not just for extra data. This is not just so we can contemplate uh, you know, the theology of all of this. Paul has an express purpose by adding this bonus material, and, and it's very pastoral. I mean, being a pastor at heart, Paul knows that his Jewish readers would be troubled and possibly confused by, by what he says. So he, so he deals with what's on their hearts. He, he's a good pastor. He knows what they're thinking because he had to answer this question himself, and he knows what's on their minds, so he doesn't shy away from the hard questions here or remain in generalities. He, he delves into the details, and he explains the purpose of the law to them. He explains what's on their heart, like, like every pastor should, should do. And so in verses 20 and 21, Paul shows us two additional details about the role of the law. There are two additional details that he provides for us in, in these two verses... And the first detail is about God's purpose for adding the law. That's in verse 20. And the second is about grace's reigning result through righteousness. Another detail about, about the law. Why God added, added the law. So there's God's purpose and then there's grace's reigning re- result. And like always, we'll look at these, these one at a, at a time. And the first detail about the role of the law is, is God's purpose for, for adding it. Paul says in verse 20, it was, it was added alongside, it was added to accelerate, and it was overpowered by, by grace. Look, look if you would at verse 20. Here's the first detail that he gives about the role of the law that he brings up to explain. He says the law came in so that, or better, in order that, the transgression would increase. But where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. I mean, Paul says, furthermore, or moreover, or one more thing. And then he makes a statement about the law. He gives us some details about the law. And when Paul uses the term law, what he means is the the Mosaic Code. Everything that God gave to the Jewish people on Mount Sinai. From the Passover to the commandments and curses, to the sacrifices and offerings, everything in the law of of Moses. And he says, God gave all that to Moses as an additive to the plan of, of salvation. And he did that so that the transgression of Adam that he just got done talking about would actually increase. It was added alongside, and it was added to accelerate. There was Adam... The fall of Adam, the condemnation of Adam, and then Moses comes along later and God gives Moses law and that was added alongside something and it was added to accelerate. Now just pause for a minute and think about how odd that sounds. Specifically to a Jew. The law of Moses was, was, was given so that sin would increase. And you can understand why a Jewish person would, would be confused. And God added the Old Testament law to Jewish life 
But it wasn't necessary. It wasn't the main thing. It was supplementary in order that sin would increase. That's the exact opposite of what a, a Jewish person was taught to think. Maybe the opposite of what you were taught to think. They were taught that the law's role was to restrain sin, the very sin that was introduced by Adam. So the law came along to fix the problem. The law was given to promote righteousness. If you want to be righteous, then keep the law. That's what a Jewish person was, was taught. But Paul says it actually has a very different purpose, according to God. Look at verse 20. He'll explain this in detail to us. He first says the law came in so that the transgression would increase. Now, what does he mean by that? Paul says the law came in. It's a very particular word. The law entered in. The word entered actually has a prefix on it here, uh, which gives it a specific meaning. And Paul says the law entered beside of um, or alongside of something else, like a, like a parachurch ministry. It's a, it's a ministry alongside the church. Well, the, the law entered alongside of, uh, of, of something. And the question then you have to ask is alongside of what? I mean, if the law is brought in alongside of something, what is it brought in alongside of? And, and he actually has already told us that back in verse 12. Look, look at verse 12. He says, Therefore, just as through one man sin entered into the world. There's the same word that Paul uses without the prefix. Just as through one man, sin entered into the world. And now the law enters alongside of Adam's sin that, was, that already entered into the world. That sin entered into the world, and the law entered alongside that, that sin. And so sin entered into the world through the single transgression of, of Adam. But now the law entered as, as well. But it entered alongside of it. And the purpose that it entered alongside, was to make the transgression increase. Notice, also, the word transgression is singular, and it has a definite article. Verse 20, the law came in alongside so that the transgression would, would increase. And the context is Adam's one act of, of trespass that that brought condemnation to all people. We, we've been talking this whole chapter, about, or at least from verse 12, about how there was this one act of transgression. God gave Adam a, a command. He had a clear law in a command, and Adam transgressed. And that brought condemnation to, to, all, to all people. And Paul says that there was a circumstance that already existed, a, a state of affairs, as Lloyd-Jones said. Adam received a command from God and his one single act of transgression condemned mankind. But that is what existed before the law was brought in. But then it was brought in alongside that circumstance, that circumstance of, of Adam's transgression and condemnation. Lloyd-Jones said that the law didn't create a new situation. It comes in alongside of, a, of the other situation. And that other situation was Adam's sin. And this is very important, vital, for you to understand the role of the law and understand your Old Testaments. If you don't understand what Paul is saying here, you're going to mess the whole Old Testament up. Because Paul indicates that the law was something supplemental. 
something temporary, something that had a specific purpose, something that was additional. It's not something of fundamental importance. It's, a, it's an additive. It was not the main thing in God's plan of salvation. It was not even the end thing. It was not even something that was, that was intended to remain. And that's what he means when he says it was added. It was added in salvation history. The law has a subordinate or secondary role, not a primary one, like the Jews of Paul's day believed. They believed that the law was primary. And Paul's already shown us in verses 12 through 19 that it's sin and it's salvation. These are the two things that are fundamental. It's Adam and it's Christ. It's not Moses. Moses is, is not even in there as a primary figure. It's Adam's towering result and being a representative of mankind, and it's Christ's obedience. And yeah, there's Moses, but Moses is brought in alongside of the circumstance that Adam brought into the world before Christ comes. It's sin that was brought by the disobedience of Adam and the gift of righteousness by the obedience of Christ that brings salvation. And now he shows us the role of Moses, who is brought in alongside or in the midst of this drama between these two towering figures. And he says that the, the law is an additive. It's, it's not essential. And this is what a Jew could stumble over because it means that the law is not something of primary importance. Say that to a Jewish person. The law of Moses is not something of primary importance as far as God's salvation is concerned. And remember, this is not the only purpose of the law. Scripture gives us others as well, like, like in Romans 13.8. Romans 13.8 will talk about how people from a regenerated heart will will fulfill the intentions of the law by the, by, the, by the role of the Spirit, by the power of the Spirit. But the law is not something vital in the matter of salvation. The law clearly had a purpose, which Paul's going to tell us about, but, it, but it's not needed or necessary for, for salvation. Paul says it came in in order that the offense might increase. So... It was added alongside the condemnation, the sin that was already there, and it was added to accelerate. Look at verse 20 again. The law came in in order that the transgression would increase. The law was added alongside and it was added to increase sin. It's a hint of clause referring to the purpose that God gave the, the, the law. I mean, he gave it in order that the transgression would increase. And again... Looking at salvation history in the macro or, or as the whole, he didn't give the law so that individual people would, would, would sin, although I'll show you that they will as a result of the law. He introduced the law into salvation history in order that the transgression of Adam would increase. Paul says the Jewish people had missed the purpose of the law. And in one sense, Paul's correcting that here. I mean, they believe that the law is the main thing. They also believe that it restrained people from sin. And it might have restrained them externally, but it didn't restrain the sin in their hearts. They believe that the law was instrumental, a Jewish person, inclining people to righteousness. If you want to be righteous, the, the law will help you become righteous. In other words, for most Jews, 
They thought that the law would actually solve the problem that Adam introduced into the world. Just ask any modern rabbi, that's what they'll tell you. They'll, they'll, they'll tell you the, the way to God is to become righteous by following the law of Moses. That's what they'll tell you. But the Apostle Paul knew different. In fact, he tried that very thing, hadn't he? The Apostle Paul was a Pharisee of Pharisees, meaning the strictest kind of law keeper. And the Apostle Paul knew that that didn't get him one inch closer to God. In fact, it got him farther away from God. And he explains why right here. Instead of restraining the reign of sin, the law actually increases its rule. In fact, its purpose was never to change the situation created by Adam, but to make it worse. Again, think about how shocking that is. That's what Paul says. The law has increased the trespass. It doesn't race it. It doesn't ease it. It doesn't neutralize it. It, it increases it. But where is it increased? clearly increased in the nation of Israel because that's who got the law. I mean, the, the ones who got the law was the nation of Israel. And, and again, just think how shocking of a statement that is to a Jewish person. The giving of the law led not to more righteousness in Israel, but more sin. And if you don't believe that, you can read your Old Testament. Read the narrative there. Just look at Israel's history. Were they, were they closer or farther away once they received the, the, the law? I mean, how often were they judged and exiled even after they, they received the law? You understand how significant this verse is in just listening to this? God did not give the law to the children of Israel in order to give them an opportunity to save themselves by obeying it. Just as God did not give you a New Testament to give you the opportunity to save yourselves by obeying it. It was never intended for that because that is impossible. The law was given so the offenses might increase. Which is exactly what Paul says in, in Galatians, in another epistle about the law. Look at Galatians three twenty one through 22. Is the law then contrary to the promises of God? He's answering the same kind of probing questions about, about the role of the law. Is the law then contrary to the promises of God? May it never be. For if a law had been given which was able to impart life, then righteousness would indeed have been based on the law. But Scripture has shut up everyone under sin so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. How has the Scripture shut up everyone under sin? Paul says, by adding the law, which increases sin, and thereby increases our condemnation. But no law can change the heart. No law can change the condemnation of Adam. No law can change the sin nature that you've inherited from Adam. It only increases our need of something else because of what's already in our hearts from Adam. And no law can change the heart. Paul says the law puts sin on steroids. It, it adds fertilizer to it. The transgression he's talking about here is Adam's offense. But our offense increases as, as well. Doug Moose said the power of sin that was introduced into the world by Adam has not been decreased by the law, but given a new dimension 
where the law details the will of God, sin now becomes transgression. It's not just sin in general. Now there's a defined line, and the power in us steps over that line. And Paul uses the word trespass here, which alludes to what he, what he, what he says back in verse 14. Look at verse 14. Nevertheless, death reigned. Listen to the words. Death reigned from Adam until Moses, from Adam until the law, even over those who had not sinned in the likeness of the offense of Adam, the the one transgression. What's the likeness of the offense? Adam had a line, and he stepped over the line. Nevertheless, sin and death was, was reigning in the hearts of people from Adam all the way up until God gave a line to everybody. Transgression is a willful stepping over of the line. And Adam had a line and he stepped over it. And now with adding the law, all mankind has a line. And now we sin in the likeness of Adam. Because mankind now has God's definitive law to step over and break. And we do. But before the law, we had an awareness of our Creator. Our conscience was there, but we had no specific command like Adam before Moses came along. And now we have that as well. But what exactly increases here? I mean, he says it, it increases the, the transgression. In, in what way? I mean, what, what increases? The number of sins? Do the number of sins increase because of the law or the... Or does the law, getting the law of Moses, does that increase the seriousness of sin? Because that's now considered a direct rebellion against God. It's not just missing the mark. We fall short of God's glory. Now there's a transgression that's there. Is that now more serious? And sadly, the answer is both. Because the, the seriousness of sin as well as the number of sins are both increased because the law was added alongside of the condemnation that was already there. But that leads to some other more controversial questions that that people ask. Like, I mean, if this is true, if what Paul says here is true, the law came in so that transgression would increase, and God's the one that gave the law, does that mean that God deliberately brought the law in to make us sin more? I mean, is Paul saying God gave the law to... To, to make us worse? I mean, or is the law the problem? Hey, maybe we just need to have free-range living, like, you know, the free-range parenting. I mean, maybe if we just had no rules at all, we'd be better people. See, it's God's fault that He's given us all these boundaries. I mean, if God didn't give us so many boundaries, then we wouldn't, we wouldn't chafe against them. And the answer to those questions are, are, are found in James one thirteen, which tells us that that's an impossible conclusion. Because God tempts no one with evil. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted by evil, and he himself does not tempt anyone. Where does the problem lie, James? But each one is tempted when he's carried away and enticed by his own lusts. The problem is not the law. The problem is what's in me. And then when lust is conceived, it brings, it gives birth to sin. And when sin is accomplished, it brings forth death. I mean, James says God, God would never entice us to sin. In fact, it, it's impossible for God to, to do so. 
Paul is saying that law in, the law increases sin because of us. Not because there's something wrong with God's purposes or wrong with, with God's law. Which is exactly what Paul says in, in Romans chapter 7. He'll, he'll talk more about the law in the book of Romans. He's, still, he's answering the same thing. What shall we say then? Is the law sin? I mean, if all this is true, if it increases because the law is added, is the law bad? Paul says, may it never be. On the contrary, I would not have known, I would not have come to know sin except through the law. Paul says, is the law bad? May it never be. Or, or it's impossible to say that. That's what Paul means. So how does the law increase sin? And not violate God's character, His purposes. Well, I think if you look at Scripture, you, you, you can conclude, you can codify together three, three ways. How does the law increase sin? Well, the, the adding of the law makes sin increase by making sin more specific, by making sin more serious, and by making sin more seducing. More specific, more serious, and more seducing. And we look at these one at a time. First, it's the adding of the law makes sin more specific. In what way? Well, it increases our knowledge of sin because it defines sin for us. Before the law, people committed sin. They committed sin without knowing what they were doing with specificity. They committed sins at times without even, even knowing they were doing it. But when the law came in, it specified, it defined, this is right and this is, is wrong, thereby making sin more specific. It's exactly, again, what Paul says in that same verse we just looked at, Romans 7. What shall we say then? Is the law sin? Is the law bad? May it never be. On the contrary, I would not have come to know sin except through the law. The specifics of sin is what Paul's saying. For I would not have known about coveting if the law had not said, you shall not covet. I mean, there's still coveting going on before the law came. I mean, there's a, there's a tribal person in the middle of a jungle somewhere, and they look at their other tribal friend's hut, and they say, I really like that. I'd really like to have that. Or I'd like to have his wife. Or I'd like to have his dog, or whatever it is. He's coveting. But then somebody, a missionary, comes along and gives him a Bible and, and, and says, look at the Bible, it says, thou shalt not covet. And he goes, ah, okay, now I know specifically what was already going in my heart, what I was already doing. And the law has that same, that same role and, and purpose for us. Paul said, I was already coveting, but I didn't know what to call it. and I didn't know what to def how it was defined. I mean, you likely experienced that whenever you became a believer. You knew there were wrong things to do, but, but once you started reading the Bible, you learned how many th wrong things there were and how many wrong things that you'd done. Before you came to Christ, you sinned, and, and you might not even have been aware of it. There are many things that were there that you did that the Bible defined for you. And, and frankly, in a lot of cases, you didn't even care. But now that you've read the Bible, you, you know it's wrong, and you know the specific way that, it, that it's wrong. And Paul says, before the law, mankind was like a little child who doesn't realize the seriousness of, 
of, the, of what he's done or the wrong that he's done. He just kind of knows that, that, it, that, it, that it's wrong. And the little child can tell by the scowl on, on his mother's face that something happened that shouldn't have. It's kind of like your conscience. But then the, the mother corrects the child. She, she rebukes him. You should not have disobeyed mommy in, in this way. And then you understand what you did wrong. And the law is like that. So when the law was given to Moses, God drew lines. 613 of them to be exact. That's how many commandments are found in the law. 613 defined commands. Each of those with implications. Each of those with multiple applications. Not to mention the additional revelation that, that comes with it. And all of that revelation brings an, brings an increase of, of, of sin because sin becomes more specific. There's a second way. It increases sin by making sin more serious. By making it more serious. I mean, the law helps us understand the seriousness of sin and the nature of sin. You might think of it, uh, of this one this way. I mean, just because I know something is wrong, it doesn't mean I understand how serious it is. I know it's wrong, but I don't understand how serious it is. And the law comes along and helps me see how serious sin really is. Which is one of the reasons that the law is in the Bible. And you need the law in order to preach the gospel. Because moral people, people that don't think they're that bad, will know they've done wrong and they'll just say, yeah, I'm, I'm, I, I failed, but I'm a pretty good guy. And the law shows us the seriousness of, of sin. For instance... You know drinking and driving is wrong. But you may not realize how wrong it is until you sit and listen to a mother who's lost her two-year-old child in a, in a drunk driving accident and listen to her describe the pain and, and what happened. And now you understand the seriousness. You know drinking, drinking and driving is wrong, but now you understand the seriousness uh, of that. And that's what the law does. It shows us how serious and how heinous our sin is. I mean, our conscience tells us that, that things are, are right and, and wrong. It skips over certain things, which is why the law helps sin be more specific. But it's not until the law that comes along and explains what actually is happening in our hearts and how evil that actually is that we understand our sin to a greater degree. It's like the man who wore a white shirt all, the, all of the time, and it wasn't until his wife got a new one and hung it beside it in the closet that, that he realized that what the one he was wearing wasn't white anymore. And when that happens, it's, it, it's, it, it's like what Paul says in, in Romans 7.13. So that through the commandment, through the law, sin would become utterly sinful. Sin's already sinful, but it becomes utterly sinful. Even more importantly, Martin Lloyd-Jones says, through the law, we realize that we haven't just hurt someone else or even ourselves, but, but we have defied the very majesty of God. We have violated His holiness. You know, this is what David means whenever he makes the statement after Bathsheba, the sin of Bathsheba, against you and you alone have I sinned. I mean, he wasn't saying that it didn't matter what he'd done to Bathsheba and, and Uriah. 
He'd already, he already felt bad about that. The evidence that he felt bad about it, he knew it was wrong. He's trying to cover it up. I mean, is Uriah killed? Uriah killed. I mean, and, and he was even indignant whenever Nathan tells him that story about the, the little ewe lamb. I mean, his conscience is working well. David's conscience was functioning then. But it's when Nathan brought in the law with specificity, revelation. And Nathan said, you are the man. Thus says the Lord God of Israel, it is I who anointed you king over Israel. It is I who delivered you from the hand of Saul. I also gave you your master's house and your master's wives into your care. And I gave you the house of Israel in Judah. And if that had been too little, I would have added to you many more things like these. Why have you despised the word of the Lord by doing evil in his sight? And David was undone. It was this word from God where David realizes the depth of his sin, the seriousness of his sin, and who his sin actually challenged. And the law does the same thing. The law shows me my sin in all of its nasty form, and that it's actually against God, and that it's possible to be deceived by this sin. Until the law comes in, I'm not even aware how duped I am. And the law functions in that way. And finally, the law increases sin by making sin more seducing. The adding of the law doesn't make sin less enticing. It makes it even more desirable because of our rebellious hearts. Now remember, God's not the one doing the enticing, and there's nothing wrong with the law. But the giving of the law actually stirs up something in our corrupted hearts that wasn't stirred up before the commandment came. That's what Paul's saying here. What happens in your heart when you come across a law that you don't agree with? I mean, maybe you're in the park and you see a sign that somebody's put there that says, do not walk on the grass. Do you obey that sign? What if you think, why in the world is that sign there? I mean, there's a perfectly good, you know, cut through right over here. And, and, and I pay my tax dollars. Who in the world has the right to put that there? That's my property. I'm an American, right? That's what goes on in your heart. That's what goes on in mine. Or one that's even easier. You come to a door of a restaurant or someplace and right there, right in your face, right at eye level, do not enter without wearing a mask. What, what, what happens in your heart? I'll tell you what happens in my heart. I'm never eating in that place again. I'm not eating in that place. I'll go, I'll do Uber or drive through or whatever it is. What happens in your heart? Oh, there must be some good reason for that rule. I'll just obey. That's not what goes on in your heart. Not at all. Something stirred up in your heart. And that's the laws of men, which can be stupid. We're talking about the laws of God. It doesn't promote righteousness or obedience because my nature is so perverted that whenever I see a command telling me not to do something, it produces in me not a desire to obey it, but an impulse to be disobedient. 
even the simplest of restrictions that we know is for our good, like cutting back on food, produces the strongest desire for dessert you've ever had in your life. And when you see a sign that says no fishing, what you think is there must be some really good fishing right here, and I'm going to come back after dark. And that's what Paul means when he says the law increases the transgression. The transgression of Adam has already happened, and that transgression remains, and the people, the representatives, uh, the, the people that Adam represents, they're now corrupted and condemned, and the law is then added to increase what took place in the garden. You realize how significant this is? This means adding rules will not save you in any way. This means adding rules will not get you closer to God at all. And this means adding rules will not sanctify you in any way. Your sanctification doesn't come through rules. Your sanctification comes through the Spirit in Jesus Christ. And this passage would be, uh, would be depressing if the verse stopped there, but, but it goes on to explain that the law was not the end. It was added alongside until something else came. Look, look at verse 20, and we'll, we'll, we'll finish this up next week. Verse 20, the law came in, came in alongside, so that the transgression would increase, but where sin increased, Grace abounded all the more. Paul says where sin increased, grace super increased. Or to say it another way, God's ultimate purpose was not the increase of sin, but to magnify the power of grace. God intended the law to increase the gravity and number of sins so that the power of grace would be seen for what it is something that's super-increased to conquer sin. Paul says the law was leading us somewhere. It shows us that the, the problem of Adam, the problem that Adam introduced into the world, is not fixed by Moses. It's ultimately to see our need of grace. So Paul says where sin increased, grace superabounded all the more. Aren't you glad the story doesn't end with the law? It ends with Jesus. <laughs> but unless you look the law in the face and see how specifically you have sinned and how God says you have crossed this line and that line and this line and that line, you won't see your need for the gospel. It'll remain in generalities and you'll conclude... I failed, but I'm a pretty good person. And unless you hear the law and realize how serious your sin actually is, that yes, you've sinned against others and, 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 and even against yourself, maybe your spouse, maybe someone unsuspecting, but ultimately, you've sinned against God. Unless you look at the law and hear the law in that way and understand the seriousness, you'll not see your need of grace. Unless you consider the law and realize the power of sin that's reigning in your heart, that, 
that something is in there that you cannot control and you cannot overcome yourself. No matter how much law you add there, you'll not see your need of Christ and your need to be born from above. Paul says that's the role of the law. Has it condemned you? Has it condemned you specifically, seriously? (laughs) Has it revealed how seducing your heart actually is? And come to the one who can wash all those sins away. His name is Jesus. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. How clear it is. How helpful. How even when it introduces a question, it answers a question if we'll listen to it. How it's progressive in Revelation how it interprets itself. And thank you for the law. How it reveals to us our true condition, not to leave us there, but to bring us to Christ. And so, Father, I pray for for anyone who might be outside of the Lord Jesus this morning, still in Adam, that they would realize that there is no way to come. You can't climb up another way some law. It's only through the, the great shepherd of the sheep who willingly laid his life down as a substitute and a sacrifice. And I pray for any Christian, Lord, that's here that may have gotten off track like the Galatians and have confused that they began by the Spirit, they began by grace, and now they think that they're perfected by the law. But this morning they would be reminded the purpose of the law. It's not to sanctify them. Um, is to reveal and to increase that we might press ever more into grace. And we thank you for that grace in Jesus' name. Amen.